This is John Halsman, and welcome to our weekly Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense, in political risk terms at least, of the beguiling new planet and era we find ourselves on and in. And I'm still sitting here at my desk in a very frigid Milan, which is our one month of winter in February, uh, coming from Ohio and um, having lived only in the north in my life, in Scotland and in England and in Ohio and in Holland and in Germany. It's great to be south of the Alps, where we only have one really bad month of winter this year, which is February, but it is very Baltic. And as I sit here in my jumper uh, with my Brooks Brothers shirt on and my jacket, uh, my Massimo Dutti jacket, I couldn't be warmer. But I'm looking longly outside as we get ahead of the spring campaigning. And to give you an idea about what we're going to be doing, and I know a lot of you like to follow it on the travels um, boy, it's, it's exciting coming up. In uh, February, I'm going to be seeing the kids in Germany. And of course, I'll work while I'm in Bavaria working there, seeing the kids, uh, Matilda and Samuel, which is very exciting. And then in March, we have an incredibly busy schedule. So I'll dive right in from Bavaria, get back, change my clothes, spend as much time here as I can with Sarah and the kids. And then I have a week where I play two war games for our good client Barclays out in Asia, uh, playing war games on the future of a post-Ukrainian world. I play these games in Singapore and in Sydney. I take the longest flight in the world, the longest single leg. It's a 23-hour, 55-minute flight, a full day of flying. I get half of my frequent flyer miles for a BA on this one trip heading out there where I play two war games and then head directly back in a week. I then head off to London for another Informa gig. Very exciting to be keynoting Finnovate uh, in Informa, doing my old stomping grounds and uh, my favorite city in the world, London, uh, mid-month. And then late in the month, uh, we head on off. Um, I can't even remember them. That's how busy this is. Uh, where do we go at the end of it? Oh, we go to Lake Como, uh, which is a home match. It's just an hour away, beautiful Lake Como, uh, which I love going to the Villa d'Est, one of the most beautiful hotels in the world. And we go and stay on Como. And I play a war game again on a post-Ukrainian world order. Then in April, we go to see clients in Dubai, which will be exciting. Sarah and the kids can come in Dubai. In May, we uh, already have an event scheduled in San Francisco at the end of the month, and it looks like we'll probably be in Athens in June. So to put that in order, it's Bavaria first, then Singapore and Sydney, then London, then Lake Como, then Dubai, um, following into May, um, where we, we go to San Francisco, and then probably Athens in June. So it becomes really busy. So I'm enjoying this little period of time to be home, frantically working on the book. Great news on the book. Many of you have asked about that. The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. Uh, we're moving forward at a great pace. I'm about a third of the way done. I hope to get another chapter done in the next week. And that's why I've moved our gig to today rather than tomorrow, because I want to start writing tomorrow. I'm so eager to get on with writing. And what we're going to do, this book is an unabashed, wildly ambitious historic effort to unite the Republican Party's wings around a realist foreign policy moving ahead by looking back at American history and the tenets that have governed realism since Washington and Hamilton all the way up until now. The book begins with Washington and Hamilton, and it ends with Ronald Reagan. I can't think of a better way to end. 
and uh, I'm very excited to lay out the tenets of realism and then look at how the Jacksonian populist base of our party uh, can adapt to this in a very positive way, forming an alliance with the Jeffersonians. And this could then move the party forward in a realist base, moving ahead into the new era that we live in. It's that big an effort. It's my effort to be George Kennan and to really use history, again, applying history as we always do, to use realism as the glue that unites the Republican Party to a old, if now new again, foreign policy moving ahead. And uh, please, when the time comes out, buy 50 copies each, and we're going to be touring the country and touring the world and speaking about this book endlessly, but we're about a third of the way done. And that means I wanted to do the talk today. And a number of you have asked me to do the jazz riffs that we do, that we just that I just talk. I don't have a note in front of me. I have a bottle of water and I'm staring out the window and I'm just going to talk for 15 or 20 minutes about where we are. And I think there are two things really that we can talk about in a jazz riff form. And I may do another one next week, the mirror opposite of this one before I hit the road and head off to Bavaria. Uh, rest assured, as we travel, we'll keep doing these, by the way. We'll never miss a community meeting once a week. I absolutely promise that wherever I am or whatever I'm doing, you guys come first and I will be sure to do them uh, because I love thinking aloud with you. I love thinking together with you and many of you write in and, and I always take your comments to heart and I love that our community is growing in leaps and bounds. But the jazz riffs, I think political risk misses two things. We underestimate the game-changing, draconian things that can that make our world worse than it is, and we underestimate the things that can make it better. In terms of worse, we always just assume things are going to limp on as they are, as they will. But of course, this isn't true. That the, the the basic theory that things will stay as they are until they stop. Um, we have to look at things that can make the world a lot worse. But we also then, and risk tends to be a gloomy profession when it shouldn't. We should look at the things that can make the world materially better than we think it is, and then look like crazy at the trend lines that move it in one direction or the other, or if it simply stays the same. But to do that, we have to look at all the parameters, the possibilities out there for the world to stay the same, but also to get far worse and far better. So we're going to start today riffing about far worse and end on a positive note. Um, next week, we're going to look at three things that can make the world far better. And first, I'm going to look at three things that could make the world far worse that aren't being factored in nearly enough in all these cases so that we can look at the range of options out there as we navigate moving forward. If we don't have these navigation points, we can't see the world as it might be. And that's the best way to sail our ship as we head into the new era and off the map and into a new world. The three things that I think can make it worse, and I can tell you this because the clients keep asking for it in one form or another over and over again, are the Ukraine war, the rise of China and American competition, and the failure of the Fed to get hold of inflation and the other central banks of the world. Uh, let's, let's do these in order of gravity. Um, I think that they, they're all terrible options that could make the world fundamentally a far worse place to live in, but, but they're not equal. And, and again, unlike Wilsonians of the left who give you a laundry list and assume all problems are the same, I couldn't believe today I read in the Times, we finally got our act together over Ukraine. Why didn't we do so over Syria and Crimea in 2014? And I wanted to scream at the man who wrote this because the problems are different and they matter to us differently. The idea that every problem is the same means you don't value anything. If you value everything as Wilsonians do, it seems to me you value nothing. 
And that's their problem. They don't assume that things are different. These three problems would change the world fundamentally negatively, would make the world worse than it is today. And let's do them in ascending order of direness. Uh, the first one is if the central banks fail to get hold of inflation. And again, the 1970s are instructive when, when this happened before. And it took until Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan in the early 1980s for this to happen. But the problem period, it's reared its ugly head during the Nixon administration. So in the early 70s, and it really wasn't dealt with until the early 80s when we uh, grasped the nettle, raised interest rates to stratospheric levels, caused the worst American recession since the Great Depression. But Paul Volcker, for all these negatives, did indeed kill the beast of inflation, or at least shackled him in a cave from which he's only recently escaped. And the problem with this is, is, is the political risk damage that was done, that inflation and people forget this. Unemployment is a tragedy if it happens to you. Inflation happens to everybody. And that's why it's a far greater political risk. It's a tax on literally everyone, whereas unemployment is a calamity only if it happens to a small, relatively small subset of the 100%. Even in the Great Depression, unemployment was at about a third, which was horrendous and totally changed the fabric of society in the United States. But it was never half or two thirds. Inflation affects 100%. Of the people. And worst of all, it's a tax on the lower middle class, people who are aspirational, who are just out of poverty, who are none, one knock away from calamity. And you see this happening right now that consumer spending is holding up very nicely in the States. But credit card debt is going off the chart, meaning people are in their last legs or using their credit cards to try to buy and get their way through where we are. But they have no wealth and they're, they're accumulating debt at a personal and private level in the same way that the government under the Biden administration, despite the happy talk of his somewhat farcical State of the Union address the other night, uh, is spending money like a drunken sailor to the fact the United States is now $31 trillion in debt. And anybody who can visualize $31 trillion anythings, let alone dollars, um, certainly can think in a more advanced level than I can. 31 trillion is a number that's not fathomable by anybody. And without it being fathomable, it's hard to deal with. But suffice it to say that most Western economies are grossly in debt. And the reason that this matters is that the way to deal with inflation, with the inflationary issue, is to raise interest rates, raise the amount of money it costs to borrow money with interest. And if you do this, you affect people personally. You, if people who don't have fixed rate mortgages in America are immediately impacted by this, and we have to watch like hawks for a housing crisis, we don't want to go back to 2008. So this is one possible problem looming ahead. And then we have the fact that the government itself, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, are soon to go broke because people simply live longer and people aren't working longer to make up the difference. It's great that people live 10 to 15 years longer than they did when Social Security was started in the 1930s by Franklin Roosevelt. But the goal then was to tide you over from about 60 to you dying at 62. Now people live to be 82. Generally, that's a good thing. But nobody's talked about paying for those extra 20 years per person. And instead, we've just run up debt. And at a certain point, this has to be reckoned with. So we have to worry about with raising interest rates, the calamity of 
Indebtedness, both personal and governmental. That's one huge thing that could go wrong. The other thing is that they don't get it right. It's as Larry Summers, who, who called this right, and I give our firm great credit, we did too. We said that the central banks across the world, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, the ECB, the Fed, have lost the plot, have lost control of where interest rates ought to be. And that beast that Volcker shackled to the cave, Frankenstein's monster, is on the loose and heading toward the village again. And the problem with hitting this moving target now that it's mobile is that it's easy to either under or overshoot. And by that, I mean, if you if you too quickly lower interest rates to lessen the pain, you think you've controlled inflation as it begins to slow down relatively. Now, by the way, these are all still increases, as Governor Sununu of New Hampshire rightly said the other day. These are still increases, just the rate of increase is slowing down. The number isn't negative. Inflation isn't going down, the rate of increase is going down. This is a gigantic difference. This means that the 10% inflation that we had is already baked into the cake, and now we're just increasing from that new base at a slightly less alarming number, but a still terrible number. It's not that it's going back down to the way things were before. That's the, the calamity that inflation presents. It doesn't go back to where it was before. The rate of increase might just be slightly less catastrophic. And that's where we are now. But the temptation will be in the Fed will be to take your foot off the gas. Instead of 75% or 50, 50 basis points going up, 75 or 50, look for the Fed to do these increases of 25 basis points. And that's because Lyle Brainerd, rather than Jerome Powell, seems to be running the show. Uh, Ms. Brainerd is the deputy head of the Fed, and she's a Democratic Party operative. I don't mean this in a negative sense. She's a very successful and canny one, but she's been made deputy head of the Fed to look after the Biden administration's interests. They have an election coming up in two years, either with Trump or with Trumpism in the guise of someone like Governor Ron DeSantis. They desperately don't want to lose this election, and they need the economy to be seen, at least on the surface, to be turning around. So they're lowering interest rates. They're lessening the pain. Uh, Brainerd is, is schooling Powell. Uh, because she's been put there by Biden to mine the Democratic Party interests. And as this is being done, um, the danger is that in order for Biden to win, the danger is by taking their foot off the gas, inflation rears its head again and goes back up, that they let they let go the, of the tough policy too soon. And uh, this is what happened in the 1970s. That there were a couple stops and starts where people howled at the rate of inflation. And so they took their foot off the gas, this various central banks, and then inflation kicked back in. And so they prolonged the agony uh, while trying to lessen it. And that's a huge danger moving ahead, which is where I think they're headed. Then the second danger um, is that they don't take their foot off the gas quickly enough and they grind the world into a, a recession or a worse recession than needs happen. And let's remember there's political risk out of this. If they, if they overshoot as opposed to undershooting, there is a great danger, too. One of the things that, that all the Western governments in the 1970s had in common that isn't remarked on nearly enough in terms of political risk is that the Callaghan and Wilson governments in England, uh, the Giscard d'Estaing government in France, the Carter administration in the United States, and ultimately it took a little bit longer, but the Schmidt government in Germany and various Italian governments, there are too many to name, all fell 
because of, of, of not controlling inflation and the stop-start stagflation, as it's called, where you get the worst of both worlds, you have high rates of inflation and you have no growth. There's a giant political risk. People became restive, society's fabric began to unwind, and government after government after government fell. And that's a giant political risk, that there's no stability in the Western world, which still runs the show. So those are the dangers that come from the Fed getting this wrong and not putting the pieces back together. It's very hard to hit a moving target and Frankenstein's monster is loose. The second danger we've talked a lot about, and I wanted to spend more time on this one than the other two, but I will mention them in ascending order of awfulness, are the ticking time bomb that is Crimea now in Ukraine. Now we're a long way from that. The Russians are just starting their offensive now on roughly the anniversary of the starting of the war. And they're going to throw between 180 and 300,000 uh, troops, their cannon fodder. Admittedly, they're not very good troops at Ukrainian defensive lines. And as Stalin has said, one of my favorite quotes, wolfishly, that at a certain point, quantity becomes quality. And we're heading there in, in Russia that that's just such a number of people. It doesn't matter if they're any good or not. They're just enough of them that they're bound to move things in their direction, at least in the short run, but there doesn't seem to be any great strategy behind this. And so although the Russians are likely to make some, some limited tactical gains in the spring, they're unlikely to decisively win the war. Watch for Ukraine to basically the line to bend but not break. Ukraine will then launch a mini offense counteroffensive of its own when the tanks come online later on in the year. But again, I think we're likely to be about back where we started with an awful lot more suffering late in uh, the autumn of the year. The danger, though, isn't stalemate here. Uh, stalemate will then come down to how long the Russian people are prepared to suffer and how long the United States is prepared to write checks for the Ukrainians. Um, as I've said before, these, these outside drivers will matter more and more. But the danger is if I were to be wrong about this, if the Ukrainians, ironically, who obviously all of us want to do well, at least not to lose and be eviscerated, but if the Ukrainians start acting on their maximalist territorial um, demands and they start winning, uh, particularly in places like Crimea, and break the Russian lines there, I think, and I've said this before, that Russia would use tactical nuclear weapons to stop that because failing to stop that offensive would lead Putin to being killed. The penalty and political risk in Russia when you lose is what the Cossacks did to the Tsar's family in the basement. Uh, at worst or at best, you're a non-person like Khrushchev and are under house arrest and then die without a state funeral in your dacha far away from Moscow where no one's allowed to talk to you. He knows the penalty isn't writing a book or making a whole lot of money like Boris Johnson explaining why you were a buffoon. And because of this and making $5 million in five months, the penalty is death. And so from Putin's point of view, it's perfectly rational to use tactical nuclear weapons if the line were to break in Crimea. And I believe the Russians certainly would. I think we are absolutely underestimating that reality. The reason we're underestimating it is that the neoconservatives in America, the people who got the Iraq war wrong and st somehow still have jobs and aren't having rocks thrown at them. And I mean this, if you're wrong about the Iraq war and literally a quarter, quarter million people died indirectly because of the things you've said, you should have the good grace to go drink yourself to death. But they're not doing that. Instead, they're now advising us blithely with absolutely no self-reflection on how wrong they've been in the past. And we should all be judged in Republican governments in a Jeffersonian way by our records. And David Frum and Ann Applebaum and Robert Kagan lionized now by the left. Incredible. 
Um, these people who were so wrong about the Iraq war and brought us that calamity are saying, don't worry, the Russians would never use tactical nuclear weapons. Of course they're saying that because they want to move ahead. They don't care if they're wrong. They want to get back and move on to Moscow. That's what, in a, in a very dangerous way, highly dangerous way motivates them. They don't think about the consequences. They never have. If they did, they wouldn't still have jobs. They wouldn't still have the nerve to say anything. Uh, but that is not, self-reflection is not their curse, to put it mildly, Ann Applebaum and David Frum and Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol. We should call these people out. We should hold them to standards. I got the Iraq war right and paid a price for it. They got the Iraq war wrong and are telling us on to Moscow. Let's judge our records as risk analysts. And I wouldn't, if they told me to go left, I'd go right. If they told me to go up, I'd go down. And the reality is, what if they're wrong? And there's certainly a chance that they are, and I think they are wrong, by the way, and Putin were to use tactical nuclear weapons in Crimea. In the Donbass, I'm not sure that he would, 50-50, I literally don't know. But in Crimea, I'm almost certain that he would. They see this as central to Russian civilization. It only became part of Ukraine when Khrushchev drunkenly decided to do this in the 1950s, uh, which made no sense was head-scratching at the time. For several hundred years before... It had been seen as an inter integral part of Russia. I've been to Crimea personally. They speak Russian. The architecture is Russian. Um, and the idea that they're just going to give up what they see as one of the cradles of their civilization uh, when Putin's life is on the line, I think he would use tactical nukes to save his life. But then we would live in the jungle. Then we, we, we'd we would live in the jungle. And one of the worst kept secrets in the world would now become obvious to even Ann Applebaum which is that if you have nuclear weapons, you have a get-out-of-jail-free card, meaning if you have nuclear weapons, the Chinese can do whatever they want to the Tibetans and the poor Uyghurs. The Russians can, can, can not worry about being invaded and behave with a certain amount of impunity. Um, and this is the reason people acquire nuclear weapons, not to use them, but because in monopoly terms, they're a get-out-of-jail-free card. And as a get-out-of-jail-free card, uh, that's an off, that will lead to vast proliferation. If there were a tactical nuclear weapon, we live in the jungle. There is no rules-based order. I, there isn't any way. I'm a realist. But that fiction goes away. And then everyone races to get nuclear weapons. Saudi Arabia, um, you certainly would. Japan's a couple screws away from being there. South Korea, uh, Iran, certainly. Uh, you begin to see the world proliferate, and we live in the jungle in a much more dangerous place. And by blithely assuming nothing will happen if the Russians were to begin to really lose. And at the moment, there's a stalemate. And let's remember, Russia still controls 20% of Ukraine. They're certainly not losing at the moment, despite all the cheerleading going on. And so this would be the second danger that could upend the world. And then the, la the last and most important danger is the Sino-American Cold War. As you know, I think this is the name of the game. We have to focus on what matters. The Indo-Pacific is where all the world's future economic growth and all the world's future political risk lie. That's why my firm spends literally 70% of its time thinking about this. It's why I'm off to Sydney and Australia, um, Sydney, Australia and Singapore to, to, to be and where we spend more and more time dealing with Asia. This is where all the economic risk and all the economic reward and all the political risk are. It's that simple. It is in the new center of the world, and we overly westernized transatlantic Europeanists uh, miss this. Larry Summers had a nice quote the other day. The United States is an opportunity. Europe is a museum, 
and China is a jail. And I, and I think that's right. I, I think that we need to start looking at these big picture questions because we simply can't do everything despite neoconservative cheerleaders and keep funding Ukraine in the way we are. We have to worry about the Indo-Pacific because of the risks that could upend the world. This is the most important one. If China were to get hold of Taiwan and the United States were either not to respond or were to fail to defend the island, uh, you'd live in a very different world. Suddenly, the Chinese or the, the Chinese can get their fleet out in the deep waters of the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Suddenly, the first island chain doesn't hem them in, and they're not at the mercy of the American fleet in terms of trade anymore. And all the other allies that have been painstakingly put into place, Japan, the Philippines, the ASEAN countries, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, India, they then begin to cut deals with China because they can see that the American security guarantee isn't worth the paper it's printed on, that American credibility amounts to literally nothing. And then we would live in a world where the most important region in the world was suddenly dominated not by the United States, as it has been since 1945, but by China. And being dominated by a country that approximates a jail would be a calamity. The Chinese would be at least co the greatest power in the world, in charge of the most important and thriving region in the world, and this would change the very nature of the world we live in, moving over time inexorably to Chinese domination of the new era. I don't want to live in a world or have my children or grandchildren live in a world run by people who jail their citizens to the extent that the Chinese do, who are authoritarian in the way they are. This would be a calamity, which is precisely why we should stop funding the Ukrainians to the tune of $110 billion for a third-order priority. We simply don't have the bandwidth anymore to be this stupid. We simply can't do everything with a $31 trillion debt, a border crisis, a fentanyl crisis that killed 110,000 people last year, almost double the number that died in Vietnam, and you don't hear a word about it, uh, that have huge economic, educational, social, political problems, and we're giving $110 billion to a third-order priority like Ukraine, all I can tell you is the Chinese leadership must be laughing themselves silly, not believing their good luck uh, and how stupid the United States has been. Because if you think you can do everything, you end up doing nothing very well. And that's the danger. We have to look at these problems in the order that they matter. And if we lose Taiwan, the Berlin of the Sino-American Cold War, that region becomes fundamentally pro-Chinese, and over time China comes to dominate the world. That's the ballgame. That's what matters. Everything else is manageable. That's what matters. And so we have to be focused on the Indo-Pacific like a laser beam and not be the fruit fly that the American media and political elite are, that whatever crisis comes up this morning, whatever is urgent takes the place of whatever is important. And that's the danger. We live in a world where the urgent always takes priority over the important. And as a result, we never deal with the important. We're giving weapons that have already been earmarked for Taiwan to Ukraine. And this is lunacy. We have to sort these three problems out. They could all upend our world. We have to see that they don't. And you can't deal with a problem until you acknowledge it exists. So today's riff has been acknowledging that these things could all go south and would change the world very much for the negative. But on a positive note, as I said, next week we're going to talk about three possibilities, plants germinating out there that could make our field a field of sunflowers, which is my favorite flower. And we could do that 
in the near future. And that would be wonderful. And so next week, we're going to do our political jazz riff on three things that can make the world, upend our world, but for the positive. And on that note, thank you very much. I really enjoyed doing that. It's, it's fun and amazingly smooth to talk to you this way. Um, as the friends that we are, and I appreciate that. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. So many of you have. We're overwhelmed by the response, and we'll keep doing these. But please do give, because we're taking a lot of time out from our lucrative business to do this. I get looked at by the accountant down his nose every time I come to do one of these. Please do give the $70 a year, which is all we're asking to give you this cutting edge, very different and very on the money look at how the world actually works. Thanks ever so much. Please do give the $70. Have a great weekend and see you next week with the positive news. Take care.